0: so here is the last girl by nadia murad part 3 chapter 11 so this is the last chapter of this book after it i will read epilogue i hope you like this book i know this is a bit difficult read because it is non-fiction book writers take all the liberty in uh, fiction books and uh, they are more interesting kind of writers cannot write anything in a anything they wanted in non-fiction because in non-fiction books you have to write only real things and events that happened but I like one thing about non fiction that you can learn so much from them really because everything is real nothing is fiction and the place, the names, the country, the, uh, the story and the is narrating or telling everything is true. I hope you like this book so let's get started Last Chapter Chapter 11 of The Last Girl by Nadia Murad Yazidis believe that Tabusi Malek first came to earth to connect human beings to God in a beautiful valley in northern Iraq called Lalish. As often as we can we travel there to pray and reconnect with God and his angel. Lalish is remote and tranquil. To get to it you drive along a narrow road that winds through a green valley past the conical roofs of smaller tombs and temples and up a hill to the village. During important holidays like our new year, the road is filled with Yazidis making the pilgrimage, and the center is like a festival. At other times of year, it is quiet with only a handful of Yazidis praying in the dimly lit temples. Lalish has to be kept pristine. Visitors must take off their shoes and walk barefoot even through the streets and every day a group of volunteers helps to maintain the temples in the temple grounds. They sweep the courtyards and trim the holy trees, they wash the walkways, and a few times a day they walk through the dim stone temples to light lamps fueled by a sweet-smelling oil made from lullish olive trees. We kiss the door frames of temples before entering, careful not to step on the entrance which we also kiss and inside we tie colorful silk into knots, each knot representing a wish and a prayer. On important religious occasions, the Baba Sheikh visits Lalish to wait for pilgrims in the main temple and prays alongside them and blesses them. The temple is the tomb of Sheikh Adi, a man who spread the Yudhi religion in the 12th century and is one of our holiest figures. The white spring runs through Lalish. We baptize ourselves outside where the spring pours into marble cisterns. And in the humid, dark caves beneath Sheikh Adi's tomb, where condensation drips off the rough walls, we splash ourselves with water in prayer at the site where the spring splits and ends. The best time to go is in April, around the Yazidi New Year. When the seasons turn and new rain fills the holy white spring, in April the stones are just cool enough underneath our feet to keep us moving and the water is cool enough to wake us up. The valley is fresh and beautiful, becoming new again. Lalish is a four-hour drive from Kocho and traveling there, paying for gas and food and taking people away from their work in the fields. Not to mention the animals many families sacrificed was too expensive for us to go often. But I would often dream about making the trip. Our house was full of photos of Lalish and on the TV you could watch programs about the valley and the holy sheikhs who lived there and watch pilgrims dancing together. Unlike Kocho, Lalish is full of water and that water feeds the trees and flowers that color the valley. The temples are made of ancient stone and decorated with symbols taken from our stories. Most important, it was in Lalish that Tawusi Malik first made contact with the world and gave human beings a purpose and a connection to God. Even though we can pray anywhere, pray in the temples of Lalish is the most meaningful. When I was 16 years old, I went to Lalish to be baptized. I could hardly wait for the day to come. And in the weeks beforehand, I listened to every word my mother said. She told us to be respectful of the other pilgrims and of every object in the valley and that we were never to wear shoes or leave a mess. Don't spit, don't curse, don't behave badly, okay? She cautioned us. Don't step on the entrance way to the temples. You kiss them, okay? Even Sahib, the mischievous one, listened carefully to her directions. This is where you will be baptized, she told me, pointing to a picture of a stone cistern dug into the ground where a trickle of fresh water from the white spring ran in ribbons down the main road and here is where you will pray for your family. I never felt like there was anything wrong with me because I was not yet baptized at 16. It did not mean that I was not yet a real Yazidi. We were poor, so God would not judge us for having to delay the trip, but I was delighted that it was finally happening. I was baptized in the White Spring along with a few of my siblings, both boys and girls. A woman, one of the guardians of Lalish, did a small aluminum bowl into the stream and poured the cool water over my head, then left me to splash more onto my face and head while I prayed. Then the women wrapped a piece of white cloth around my head, and I dropped a little bit of money, an offering, on a stone nearby. Catherine was baptized at the same time. I won't disappoint you, I whispered to God. I won't go backward, I will go forward and stay on this path, I promise you. When ISIS came to Sinjar, we all worried about what would happen to Lalish. We worried that they would destroy our temples as they had so many others. As is fleeing ISIS took refuge in the holy city, guarded by the temple servants and the prayers of the Baba Sheikh and Baba Chavish. The Yazidis who fled their homes for the Holy Valley were on edge, mentally destroyed and physically exhausted by the maskaras. They were certain that any moment ISIS would storm the temples. One day, one of these playing Yazidis, a young father, was sitting in the entranceway to the temple courtyard with his son. He had not been sleeping. All he could think about was the people who died and the women who were kidnapped. The weight of these memories was tremendous. He took his gun out of his belt and before anyone could stop him, he shot himself right there in the temple entrance beside his son. Hearing the shot and assuming it was ISIS, the Yazidis living there began fleeing into the Kurdistan region. Only the servants in the Baba Chavish stayed behind to clean up the dead man's blood, perfume the burial, and wait for whatever came next. They were prepared to die if ISIS came. What do I have if this place is destroyed? Baba Chavis said, but the terrorists never made it to the valley. God protected our valley. After the maskaras, as women were slowly escaping from Islamic State captivity, we wondered what our next trip to Lalesh would be like. We needed the temples and the solek they offered, but at first no one was sure how the escaped subaya would be treated by the holy men who lived there. We had converted to Islam and most of us had lost our virginity. Maybe it did not matter that both had been forced on us against our will. Growing up, we knew this to be sins worthy of explosion from Yazidi society. We should not have underestimated our religious leaders. In late August, when the shock of the muscarriage was still new, they held meetings trying to determine the best response. Quickly, they came to a decision. Former Sabaya, they announced, would be welcomed back to society and not judged for what had happened to us. We were not to be considered Muslim because the religion had been forced upon us and because we had been raped, we were victims, not run women. The Papa Sheikh met personally with escaped survivors, offering guidance and reassuring us that we could remain Yazidis and then, in September, our religious leaders wrote a dictum telling all Yazidis that what had happened to us was not our fault and that if they were faithful they should welcome Sabaya back to the community with open arms. I have never loved my community more than in that moment of compassion. Still nothing the Baba Sheikh said or did could make us feel completely normal again. We all felt broken. Women went to great lengths to try to purify themselves. Many survivors underwent re-virginization, surgery, reappearing the hymen in the hope of erasing the memory and the stigma of the rape. In the camp, a couple of doctors treating survivors offered that service to us, saying casually to come for the treatment as though it were just a normal checkup. It will only take twenty minutes, they told us. I was curious, so I went with some of the girls to the clinic. If you want to have your virginity back, it is just a simple procedure, the doctor said. Some of the girls I knew decided to do it, but I said no. How could a simple procedure erase the times Sorry, it the times Haji Salman raped me or when he had allowed his guards to rape me as punishment for trying to escape the damage from those attacks was not to one body part or even just to my body and it was nothing a surgery could repair. Still, I understood why other girls would do it. We were desperate for any kind of solace and if it helped them imagine a normal future in which they were married and had a family, then I was happy for them. I had a difficult time thinking about my own future. When I was young in Kocho, my world was so small and so full of love. I had to worry only about my family and everything told me that things were getting better for all of us. Now even if all of us girls survived and worked hard to recover, where were the Yazidi boys who would marry us? They were in mass graves in Sinjar. Our entire society had been nearly destroyed and Yazidi girls were going to have very different lives from what we had imagined as children. We were not looking for happiness just to survive and if we could, to do something meaningful with the lives we had been so randomly allowed to keep. A few months into my stay at the refugee camp, I was approached by activists, one of whom asked me for my abaya. I am collecting evidence of the genocide, she said. One day I want to open a museum, another after listening to my story, wondered if I would feel comfortable going to the UK to tell officials what had happened to me. I said yes, not knowing how much that one trip would change my life. The last few months at the camp were spent preparing to go to Germany. Dimal and I were both immigrating, but Adke refused. I won't ever leave Iraq, she told us. She was always stubborn and I envied her. Germany promised safety, school, a new life, but Iraq would always be home. We had been through piles of paperwork to prepare for the move and had gone to Baghdad to get our passports made. It was the first time I had ever been to Iraq's capital and also my first time in an airplane. I stayed there for 12 days, every day going to a different office to be fingerprinted, to have photos taken to get vaccinated against various strange diseases. It seemed like an endless procedure and then one day in September, we were told it was almost time to go. They took us to Irbil and gave us each some money to buy clothes. Dimal and I wept, saying goodbye to everyone in the camp, especially Adki. I thought of Hajni so many years ago trying to sneak into Germany, thinking that if he had. Sorry, thinking that if he made money, real money, the kind you can make in Europe, Zilan's family would have no choice but to let them marry. He had been sent back and here I was with a ticket paid for by the government and it was the hardest thing I had ever done. Before leaving for Germany, we went to Lalish. Dozens of former Sabaya flooded the streets of the holy village, crying and praying, dressed in mourning black. Dimal and I kissed the door frame of Sheikh's Adi's temple and tied the colorful silk fabric into knots, each knot a prayer for the safe return of everyone who was alive, for happiness in the afterlife to those like our mother who had died. For Kocho to be liberated and for ISIS to have to answer for what they did to us. We splashed the cool water from the white spring onto our faces and prayed to the Ushi Malik harder than we ever had. Lalish was serene that day, and while we were there, the Baba Chavish came out to meet the group. The holy man is tall and thin with a long beard and kind, inquisitive eyes that make people open up in his presence. As he sat with his legs folded underneath him in the courtyard of Sheikh Adi's tomb, his white drops fluttered in the bridge, and the thick smoke from the green tobacco he had packed into his wooden pipe floated over the large crowd of women who went to greet him. We knelt in front of him and he kissed our heads and asked us question, What happened to you? He wanted to know. And we told him that we had been captured by ISIS but escaped and were now on our way to Germany. Good, he said in a soft sad voice. It was painful for him to see so many cities leaving our homeland in Iraq. The community, the community was dwindling before his eyes but he knew we had to move on. He asked us more questions, where are you from, how long were you with ISIS, what was the camp like, and then at the end, when his pipe was nearly empty and the sun was lower in the sky, he turned to us and asked, simply, who have you lost? Then he sat and listened closely as each of the women, even the ones who had been too shy to speak before, recited the names of their family and friends. Their neighbors and children and parents, the dead and the missing. Their answers seemed to go on for hours as the air grew cooler and the stone on the temple walls darkened in the fading light. Kazidi names listed in an endless chorus chorus, stretching out into the sky to where God would hear them. And when it was my turn, I said, Jalo, Pais, Masood, Khari, and Elias, my brothers. Malik and Hani, my nephews, Mona, Jilan and Samir, my brother's wives, Catherine and Nisran, my nieces, Haji, my half-brother, so many who were taken and escaped, my father who was not alive to save us, my mother Shami, wherever she is. I hope you like it. Thank you for joining me.